You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Again, the passage is Mark 2, 1 through 17. I mean, if you would stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let, let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Sons, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus, and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. And we come now to this passage where Jesus, um, for the first time, really shows his cards. He lets people see who he really is. He says, uh, verse 10, the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man, which is an exalted title from the book of Ezekiel, from the book of Daniel. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And at that point... They say, in verse 7, he's blaspheming. 
This is blasphemy. He's already preached and he's cast out demons and he's healed people. and He hasn't really gotten in a lot of trouble yet, but this is like a next level of authority. Um, they're not really, they're not against forgiveness per se. I mean, there was all sorts of forgiveness in the Old Testament. These are Jewish religious teachers. So they're not against forgiveness. They're against him saying that I hold the presidential pardon, if you will, the cosmic presidential pardon that I am able to, I have authority in myself to declare someone forgiven. I mean, you see that in verse seven where they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And if you notice, he doesn't really respond. He's like, exactly. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And here I stand in your midst. He never disputes it. He just takes it. Because he knows that he has come to earth to forgive sins. He knows that's why he's here. And because he is the forgiver of sins, therefore his ministry is about drawing sinners to himself. I mean, if that's your job description to forgive sins, then obviously you're going to be calling sinners all the time. And we see him forgive the sins of the paralytic, which then leads him to go and find Levi, the son of Alphaeus, a tax collector, and to call sinners. Like bees come to a sunflower. Wherever he went, uh, there were sinners coming to him. Because he was the one who forgave sins. And he spread this fragrant aroma. So I want to look at those two things. First, the forgiver of sin. And then the one who calls sinners. So going back to the first verse. When he returned to Capernaum. That was his base of operations. This little city. This fishing village in Galilee. On the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum. That's how you pronounce it. Um, When he returned to Capernaum. It was reported that he was at home. Now he was not at his home. He didn't have a home. He was at Peter's home. His uh, number one right-hand man. And you can see that rumors are flying. People are running. It says in verse 2, so many gathered that there was no more room. Even at the door, there was no room. There was no room at all. It was like Beatlemania where people are just like, there he is. And they go shouting and screaming. You know, there's Jesus. And it's just packed. This place is packed. It says in verse 3 that four men came bringing a paralytic. And paralytics were absolutely helpless back then. There was... Um, no way uh, at all that they could move around. There were no wheelchairs. Uh, there were no ramps. There were no lifts. Um, the paralytic was completely at the mercy of his friends. But he had these four friends, these four industrious friends. And these friends wanted to help him. And so in verse 4 it says, When they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof. I thought about MacGyver. I don't know if you've seen MacGyver. But you know, MacGyver had always some way to uh, create some kind of uh, mechanism by which he could get anything done. So these guys are like, climb the outside stairs, remove clay tiles, tie ropes to the bed, lower him down. They saw the whole thing in their mind. Very creative, which is one reason I think this is a, a, a historically reliable account. Is because this is, this is uh, something that is so bizarre. It was in all the Gospels except for John. And it's, it's so unusual that it's not the type of thing that somebody making a story up would come up with. It said in verse 4, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. And I imagine Peter, who owns the house, looking up at his roof, beginning to disappear, and this thing coming down. And it's a lot to process, right? That's a lot going on there. And uh, he was probably like pulling his hair out. Like, like what is happening to my house here? Uh, But it says in verse 5 that Jesus, unlike Peter, he saw the faith behind it. Uh, He didn't see a catastrophe happening. He saw there was faith that was evident in this very act of lowering this man down through the roof. And one thing I take from this is that sometimes we all need um, the faith of our friends to lead us to 
Christ, to just lay us down at his feet. And sometimes we need to be the friends to do that. I find it interesting that he saw their faith, and yet he told the man, your sins are forgiven. Um, Sometimes faith is a, a communal thing. And when we're stuck and paralyzed, we can't move a muscle, uh, we need someone to bring us to Christ. You know, I was uh, an atheist for the first 21 years of my life, but I had this grandmother that I know was praying for me. And then I had my Catholic roommate that God brought into my life my freshman year, whose faith I just, you know, discounted, but his life was something that I couldn't discount. And then I met Margie, my wife, and her faith was very bold, very strong, uh, very funny, uh, very witty, very cutting, and uh, I couldn't discount that. And then I read C.S. Lewis and his faith, their faith. These four people and many others brought me to the feet of the Lord. And they didn't give me advice. We don't need to give each other advice or fix their problems. We, we lay each other down at the foot of Christ. That's what our call is to do, is to lay people down at the foot of Christ. And his main interest is not to fix the man's problems. If you notice... He didn't say rise and walk. That was not the first thing he said to the man. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Verse five. And I'm sure the guy was like, forgiveness. That's not what I'm here for. Clearly, my legs don't work. I'm not here for forgiveness. I'm here to be healed. But Jesus says, you know, I'm going to get there. But that's not your biggest problem. Jesus sees the problem behind the problem. And our biggest problem is never our health. Um, I don't know what you think your biggest problem is, but uh, it's not your face. You might not like your face. You might not like your weight or your feet. I don't really like my feet right now. They're not working for me. Uh, You might not like, you know, I don't, you might have some kind of medical condition. I have epilepsy. I don't like that. You might have chronic pain in your shoulder. Um, You might have a terminal illness even. That's not your biggest problem. You know, Americans spend uh, $4 trillion a year on health care. Which is up from 1.4 trillion in 2020. This is two years. It's gone from 1.4 to 4. And, and Jesus says, you know, I know that pain in a human body is very, very important to me. And I'm going to give you a new body that will never feel pain again. And I love to heal people. And Christ is all about healing. And all medical professionals are doing that. And it's a very important part of the kingdom. But he says, I want something more than your healing. Namely, I want to free you of guilt. Because your guilt is killing you more than your, whatever is happening to your body. You know, he sees down to the plaque that is, you know, occluding all the arteries of our soul after decades of pizza and coke and chain smoking. Our, you know, our soul, these black, calcified, immobile arteries that this, our soul does not work very well anymore. And we might even feel guilty. You might not feel the guilt, but it's still in there. It's blocking you. It's your, it's your biggest problem in your life is your sin and your guilt. And Jesus is so eager to clean this man's soul of all that plaque uh, that he doesn't even wait to be asked. It's very interesting that the man never says, uh, please forgive me. He never says he's sorry. He never apologizes. And it is so, uh, the liberality of Christ is so stunning. Uh, He's so magnanimous, munificent, that uh, the scribes are scandalized by him. They say in verse 7, Why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, he's throwing around forgiveness like he owns the place. Scandalous forgiveness. C.S. Lewis says that Jesus told people their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult the people they hurt. He always acted like he was the party chiefly offended. I mean, it's kind of crazy that he's telling this man that his sins are forgiven. Imagine, you know, after, um, after the incident... Um, 
where Will Smith, you know, famously slapped Chris Rock. And the next guy who comes up is Sean Combs. And imagine Sean Combs announcing to everyone, I proclaim uh, Will Smith forgiven. I forgive him of what he just did. That would, be, that would be absurd. It would be bizarre. It would make no sense at all because he was not the party offended. But that's what Jesus is doing. He walks around acting like he has the authority to tell anyone whatsoever their sins are forgiven. And it doesn't matter what that person's done. It doesn't matter what kind of war crimes they've committed, what kind of terrible things they've done. Jesus says, I am the party chiefly offended. As David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Even though David had killed uh, a man and slept with his wife, uh, nevertheless, David says, it's against you, Lord, that I have sinned. And Jesus says, I am that Lord. And I forgive that sin. And notice his response to the detractors the scribes and the Pharisees who were saying, uh, why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's blaspheming. Jesus says uh, in this brilliant setup of the many moments of, uh, of just uh, insane logic uh, demonstrated by our Lord. He says in verse 9, which is easier? He tells them, which is easier? He asks him a question. I love how he often responds to a statement or a question with a question. Which is easier? Your sins are forgiven. Or rise and walk. Now he's talking to the Pharisees who have just complained. And he tells them, so which is easier for me to do? Which is easier for me to say? To say to the man, um, your sins are forgiven or to rise up and walk. Now remember, he has just told the man his sins are forgiven. So he's already claimed to have done that. Jesus has already claimed that with a snap of his finger, this man's arteries are all clean and perfectly healthy. This man's soul is clean now. So he's already claimed to do that. And now he says to the scribes, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? It's a good question. Which is easier? And the, the, the answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, I could say to any one of you, your sins are forgiven. I proclaim your sins forgiven. And who would know? Who would know whether they're forgiven or not? You can't see whether someone's sins are forgiven. But if I were to say to someone who was paralyzed right here, if I were to say, rise and walk, um, you would think I was a fool. Like you would never say that to anybody unless you could make that happen, unless you could back that claim up. Unless you can regenerate you know, nerve endings and spinal cords, you would never say that. But that's exactly what Jesus does. As soon as he makes this, as soon as he inserts this question and gets them thinking, he then, he then says to the man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And I love in the Greek, it's like exactly the same words. Immediately he rose, he picked up his bed, and he went home. And what Jesus is saying, the logic is so clear, is that my invisible, my visible healing of the man proves my invisible forgiveness of the man. The fact that I just completely regenerated his spinal cord proves that I have cleansed his soul of guilt. And he said, if I have that much authority over a broken body, I clearly have that much authority over a broken soul. And I think the question for us is, question for me, for you right now, is do you... Do you believe that the forgiveness of Christ is that real and objective? Uh, your guilt is not a subjective matter. It's not what you feel about yourself that matters. It's what God says about you. It's objective guilt outside of you. No matter what anybody says about you, you might think you're guilty. All your friends might think you're guilty. But if Jesus says you're not guilty, you're not guilty. So do you believe that, that your forgiveness is as real as the regeneration of this man's spinal cord? That it actually has changed your life forever? That it's actually gone. It's just gone from you. It's not there anymore. And we might feel varying levels of that forgiveness, but the, the, for, the forgiveness itself is just completely gone. And I know there are certain sins that really are really hard 
uh, to feel cleansed from, especially sexual sins. Especially sexual sins. Going too far, porn, adultery, cheating, hooking up. Those things are just the types of sins that somehow we have a very hard time offloading. And Jesus says to you, no matter what you've done, you're clean, you're pure, you're totally forgiven. I do not hold that against you, and it will never be spoken of again. It's gone. And if you're struggling to forgive yourself, even though you know he's forgiven you, think about how aggressive he is. Think about how dead set he is. You know, he may or may not heal a person. Occasionally he'll heal people in the gospel. Occasionally he won't, but he always forgives. If you ever ask for forgiveness, he 100% of the time will forgive you. And I can promise you that you do not have higher standards for moral excellence than Jesus does. So if he says you're forgiven, I don't care what you say. His standard is here and yours is like here. So you can let this go because this standard has said it's, it's over with your sin. And you don't have to pay him back. You don't have to pay him back for anything. Um, you just stand in awe. Verse 12, they were all amazed and glorified God. That's the right response to forgiveness is simply to be amazed and to glorify God and never to take it for granted. They say in verse 21, we have never seen anything like this. We've seen healers. We've seen people casting out demons. We've seen the exorcists and the healers. We have never seen anybody come and actually forgive a man right before our eyes. So that's the first point, is that he forgives sins. The second point is that he calls sinners. Uh, He calls them efficaciously, as we say in our uh, Westminster Standards. The Presbyterians have these things called the Westminster Standards. And one of the statements is the uh, effectual call of God. Um, not just that he calls you, but he, it's like the, um, in, in Star Trek, you know, the tractor beam. And, he, and it, it, the tractor beam comes out of the Starship Enterprise. It lands on a, an enemy ship and it draws it in. And the, the enemy ship can try to move away as much as possible and fire its boosters the other direction. And it might get a little ways away, but the tractor beam pulls it in. I think Star Wars has something similar. But the effectual call is the idea uh, that once he's got you locked in, you're going to come in. You're coming into the Starship Enterprise. Uh, he's the hound of heaven, and you can run like a rabbit, and he's going to track you down and bring you in. So look at uh, Levi, verse 13. On the way to the sea, Jesus passed by Levi, the son of Alphaeus. You know, fully named, fully known. Tax collector. Sitting at a tax booth. Tax collectors were hated. Uh, they were treasonous. They were Jewish because they knew the Jewish people. They knew uh, the names. They knew where they lived. But they were working for the Romans. They were working for the enemy. So they were, they were the most hated people in all of, in all of Judea. And uh, this is an unexpected interruption in the day for Jesus. He was going down to the sea. He just forgave the man. He's going down to the sea. He, he didn't see this coming, but all of a sudden, there's Levi. And it's like he locks in and says, you know, this is my mission now. You know, this is somehow the spirit tells him, talk to that guy. And so in verse 14, it says he stopped and he looked at him. And if you look in the Gospels, go through in the Gospels and look at where it says he looked at them over and over and over. It's a word. The Gospels don't waste any words. And it's a word that uh, all the Gospel writers love to use of Jesus, that he looked at them. He sees the person. So he stops. And I can't imagine the eye contact with 
the Savior of the world. You know, God, I imagine when the Savior of the world came, a man with no guilt, uh, no shame, when he looked at you in the eyes, he didn't break that stare. You know, we always break the stare because it's kind of uncomfortable. When he looked at Alphaeus, Levi, son of Alphaeus, that way he was locked in. He looked at him. And then he said, having looked at him for a while, then he said, um, follow me. Follow me. And uh, I love uh, the movie, The Miracle Maker, my favorite Jesus movie. It's a claymation movie, The Miracle Maker. But when he calls Levi um, in that movie, Levi is sitting in his tax booth, you know, which would be like a table, a long table like this table right here, filled with coins where he's you know, getting people's denarii to take their taxes. And in that scene, when Jesus says, follow me, Levi just takes his arm and just sweeps all the coins away. And he stands up and he follows him. It says in, verse 20, uh, in, in Luke 5, 28, he says, leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Leaving everything. Forget about the table. Forget about the Romans. Forget about what I owe and what they owe. It's like the paralytic. Levi could finally stand again. He could finally move his muscles. The plaque had been cleaned out. And he was able to morally come alive. You know, for the first time, he, he, he had come alive. He was just sitting there at the tax clue, uh, dead in his sins. And Jesus says, follow me. You know, he, didn't, he didn't even descend on a mat. I mean, at least the paralyzed guy came down on a mat. He was just sitting there uh, asking for nothing. And Jesus just said, follow me. Effectual call. And he followed him. And notice the response of Levi. Um, Luke 5, 29 puts it this way. Uh, Mark says uh, simply that he made a feast. In, in, in Luke 5, 29, it says Levi made a great feast in his house. A great feast. And I love how grace spontaneously creates generosity. In the same way that lightning spontaneously and automatically creates thunder. Grace, just by its very nature, when it, when it strikes into your life, generosity explodes. When you understand grace... You become generous. You know, in the moment of understanding grace, if you were to right now understand how fully you were forgiven, it would make you do something incredibly generous and maybe a little bit reckless and irresponsible. Because when you understand grace, it just explodes in generosity. And so he makes this a great feast. This guy's really rich, really, really wealthy. So, um, you know, a feast in itself takes a long time to prepare. This is a great feast. So this might have taken all day. You know, I don't know what hour of the day he called him and then what hour of the day the feast was, but I'm sure that there was a lot of time in there where Levi would go from house to house and introduce Jesus to all of his best friends in the town of Capernaum, who would have all been kind of the underbelly of the city. You know, prostitutes, centurions, nightclub owners, bartenders. It says in verse 15 that, Jesus reclined at table with many tax collectors and sinners. Reclining is how they ate back then. They were on a, a couch and kind of laid back uh, and ate reclining. And Jesus was now reclining at table with all of these sinners. You know, the, the, the worst set of the city of Capernaum. And they all wanted to come and, and meet him. You know, that's interesting that these people actually wanted to come and meet Jesus. And that causes more grumbling among the scribes and Pharisees. Notice what they say in verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he fraternizing with those people? Why is he uh, commending their behavior? Why is he approving of their behavior? Why, is, 
Why is she at that party? You know, why? Why is why is he getting drunk like that? Why is she wearing that? I can't believe he's dancing in that way. You know, the way we judge people by just sight. And these people are thinking those uh, those people are so sinful. And so he's clearly attaching himself. to. I can't believe he's doing that. I mean, don't we do that? Those of us who believe aren't we tempted to judge people like that? Especially at a party, a great feast. I mean, there was, this was, this was alcohol, right? There was alcohol being served here. And, and Jesus wasn't trying to control everybody's behavior. So I'm sure there were people who were a little bit drunk at this great feast, given the people who were there. And yet he's just sitting there. Um, even the disciples are not quite willing to come inside. You notice there that um, the Pharisees and scribes talked to the disciples. That means the disciples are probably like on the porch. They're kind of hanging out on the porch, but not quite in the house because they knew that if we have table fellowship with those people, what's that going to say about us? And we live here, so we don't want to get a bad reputation. So they're kind of out on the porch and uh, the Pharisees are talking to the disciples, maybe like whispering. But then Jesus like takes his, you know, his his knife or whatever and taps it on the glass to get everybody's attention because he hears what they're saying out there and he turns to the scribes and the pharisees and probably stood up and he said uh those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick which i'm sure he said with a smile because it's definitely ironic if not sarcastic he's mocking them out of love but still Uh, He's mocking them. He's making fun of them. He's judging them in a way. He's he's showing them how foolish they are. But he's also inviting them in to laugh at themselves, to see how foolish they are, to pretend that they are on a higher moral level than these people. It's a lot like the parable of the prodigal son where the elder brother will not come into the feast and the father goes out and tries to welcome him in. And Jesus is trying to welcome them. Come into the feast. Don't exclude yourself with your grumbling. You know, he's kind of telling them, clearly y'all are so healthy and righteous and so unlike these sinful sinners in here. And clearly you don't need a doctor at all. You're totally fine out there. He's making fun of them. And then he drops the hammer in verse 17, where he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The righteous are those who consider themselves righteous. And he's saying, those are not my people. The people that think of themselves as righteous and judge and stand outside of the party and criticize, that's not my people. And if you think you're righteous, then you don't need forgiveness. You have no need of forgiveness if you think you're righteous. But the church is not a place, the church is not Planet Fitness where everybody's working out, looking in the mirror, looking great, looking fit, looking strong. The church is more like... The ER waiting room at Baptist Hospital. And if you've been in there, you don't want to be in there very long. A lot of coffee and a lot of sickness. Um, it's depressing. But the church is more like that. It's, it's, a, it's a place for sick people. Uh, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Because it cost him nothing to heal the man. It cost him absolutely nothing. It cost him crucifixion to forgive the man. It might be easier to say... It might be easier to say your sins are forgiven, but it's much harder to actually accomplish that. And to accomplish that, I mean, he created the world with a snap of his fingers. He could heal everybody's diseases in the entire world you know, just by clapping his hands. And they're all completely healed. But to forgive sins of even one person, he had to go and he had to bear the sins. He had to take 
the sins on himself. He had to absorb the sins. Remember, we love these rascals.